I'm Mark Peterson, and this is Before, During, and After, a podcast from FEMA. Fire Prevention Week is observed each year during the week of October 9th in commemoration of the Great Chicago Fire, which began on October 8th in 1871 and caused devastating damage throughout the city. This tragic event inspired numerous changes in fire policy, not just in Chicago, but cascaded throughout the nation. On this episode, we talk with Dr. Lori Moore Merrill, the U.S. Fire Administrator, about all things fire prevention on this 100th observation of Fire Prevention Week, and as we sit here today, 151 years beyond the Great Chicago Fire. Okay, so we're we're looking at a hundred years of commemorating Fire Prevention Week, and I'm so thrilled to sit down and hear some thoughts from Dr. Lori Moore Morell. Uh, it is so great to to meet you and also to talk to you about fire prevention. Well, good morning, and uh, it's great to meet you too, Mark. I'm excited to be able to spend some time with you today. Thanks so much for spending that time, and also congratulations on being appointed to to serve as the the nation's fire administrator. Um, and so, I just really wanted to get to know you a little bit and talk about what your journey was to to uh, serve in this position. Well, I started back in 1987, so I was actually um, just graduating college uh, and headed to medical school. And uh, the Memphis Fire Department. I went to school in Memphis, grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, but moved to to Memphis to go to school. The uh, Memphis Fire Department was hiring, and I had gone to paramedic school in undergrad, and so they had given a special preference um, to paramedics because that, in that time, they were really trying to grow that kind of capability. And so I was hired um, by the Memphis Fire Department in 1987. I was the sixth woman hired there uh, in Memphis, and so uh, that came with its own challenges. Uh, but beyond that, um, I was recruited then in 1993 by the International Association of Firefighters. Uh, EMS had become really my focus, particularly EMS with uh, inside a fire department and the way it was performed and really growing to what we knew as fire-based EMS. And so I was recruited to the IFF to come and build up uh, EMS resources at the national level. And so we began to do that. And at that time, there was quite a lot of... Um, competition or angst really with the private ambulance companies because they were growing also and it was more of a for-profit kind of venture. And so the challenge was trying to build resources to protect jobs, honestly. The IFF is a labor organization, as you know, and it was trying to protect what we know is the main infrastructure for our capability to respond, which is the fire service, and making sure that those um skill sets, you know, that uh, a tribute to EMS were maintained and perpetuated inside the fire service. And so that's really what I did for a, a long time at the IFF, build up those kinds of uh, capabilities and capacities uh, for, for resources and, and helping our decision makers at the local level really understand deployment of emergency services and multi-faceted emergency services, right? Cross-train, multi-role. And that was really the efficiencies that came with that. Uh, from there, I, I spent 26 years at the IFF. And so I uh, had expanded beyond EMS uh, about five years in and began to do uh, a lot more research. So I um, graduated with a master's in epidemiology, which is really the study of populations, and then on to a, a doctor of public health, uh, looking at um, 
basically performance of systems, not only studying the systems, but performance and, and looking at performance metrics and how we measure our capability to deploy in emergency response systems. And that's certainly not just the fire service. I mean, that is what we are, uh, are doing with emergency management as well. So looking at matching resources that we deploy to the risk event that we're responding to, right? If we match those resources well, then we are far less vulnerable for, for us, firefighter injury and death, civilian injury and death, and property loss. And that is really important. And so that's what I studied for a long time and actually perpetuated throughout the fire service with a lot of that research. And I retired uh, in 2019 and started a data institute. So data has become a very prominent point uh, of what I do is trying to deliver intelligence, not just data, but where's the information in the data. And uh, did that for a couple of years. And now I am I'm here, uh, appointed by President Biden last year in 2021. I mean, certainly there's uh, the, the issue of data and how it can transform the way that um, most industries can do business, not not just FEMA and probably the fire service as well, um, yeah, is so important right now. If thinking back, um, you've had a long and distinguished career, but thinking back to your time uh, in uh, as a paramedic, you know, were there challenges that you saw early on that kind of led you into the policy um, side of things or that, that you know, maybe motivated you to want to sort of change the way that we do business? You know, that's a great question. Um, there were, as you, as I said, we we talk a lot about deployment of resources. And where I found the greatest lack of understanding is at the, the local level, particularly with um, city councils, mayors, county commissions, you know, those local decision makers elected or appointed um, and their understanding of the fire service as a whole. And so that really is what drove me because uh, information and informed decision making is key. Uh, often, you know, we see in the political environment in particular that politics plays in heavily. We get that. But having informed decisions based on data, based on evidence, based on fact uh, is what drove me to be not only a scientist in this space, uh, but a data scientist to be able to bring that information. And often our decisions can be data driven or they're data informed. And, and I think that that's uh, something that helps us at the local level. Education is part of that because our decision makers that obviously have great control over our resources, over our funding, if they don't understand what we do, then how can they make the best decisions on our behalf? Uh, and speaking for the fire service, that has everything to do with crew size. Uh, we know there's a science to how many people ride on every fire truck. Uh, we know that we can diminish the, the death and injury for firefighters and civilians. And as I said, property loss, if we appropriately deploy and appropriately deploy trained people, we know that their PPE matters. And when we talk to decision makers and they are, you know, astounded by the cost of PPE, well, yes, it's expensive, but it is absolutely necessary because we um, every day deploy into these spaces where people put their lives on the line. And if we don't appropriately uh, provide them protection, their own personal protection, their breathing apparatus, those things matter and those lives are not dispensable. And I think that's an important point um, that a lot of people, um, you know, in those seats often don't 
remember. It's not that they don't know it, they don't remember. And so that's really been my driver in the science space and really addressing uh, informed fact-based decision-making in policy. As the U.S. Fire Administrator, you are constantly uh, engaging with all levels of the fire services. And are you hearing some of those same challenges uh, that that we just kind of talked about? I mean, are they echoing those same things today and sort of asking for your support going forward with? Oh, absolutely. Our national organizational partners um, are very diligent in you know, maintaining relevance and understanding what the what is the message, you know, of the day, of the week, of the month, based on what we are seeing in the field. So if there are major wildfires, then we are all coalescing to speak about wildfire. If there are, you know, high-rise building fires with multiple fatalities, then we are coalescing to help our decision makers understand what went wrong, what happened. Uh, in that scenario so that we can learn those lessons and never have them happen again. So yes, the advocacy role of the USFA is huge. And uh, what I'm, I have tried to do since I arrived certainly is to bring that voice of the fire service as the as a whole together. Uh, in years past, we've got a little, little divergent uh, and everybody's kind of done their own thing. But that is something that I think if we are going to um, make a significant impact on not only the fire problem in this country, but at least people recognizing the danger that exists uh, and not being so complacent uh, about that danger, then we must act together. And so even our messaging uh, and how we educate our own people to speak about these problems is important. So, um, yes, we we are very much in that seed and trying to pull together. And we are seeing our national organizations step into the space and uh, excited to do so. So let's maybe turn our attention uh, for a little bit to fire safety. So as I mentioned at the sort of the top of the conversation, it's the 100th year commemoration of Fire Prevention Week, which runs from October 9th to uh, October 15th. And since I'm sitting here in Chicago, Illinois, I'd be remiss not to mention that it's the 151st anniversary of the Great Chicago Fire. Um, um, Although I think we are officially celebrating the 150th anniversary because of uh, COVID, it kind of postponed some of that uh, awareness. Um, so the this 100th year anniversary of the Fire Prevention Week, uh, the theme is fire won't wait, plan your escape. And the focus is really about being safe from home fire. So it is Chicago. It was 39 degrees here this morning uh, in late September, early October, I guess. Cold weather is just around the corner for many of us. And, and you know, that means pulling out things like electric space heaters and trying to keep warm. Um, but if they're not used carefully, it's a danger, right? So can you talk a little bit about some of those hazards that we see uh, with home fires and, and some of the things we want to be aware of? Absolutely, yes. And thank you for recognizing Fire Prevention Week. It is the 100th anniversary of Fire Prevention Week, and, and we are going to be focused on that uh, a great deal. We actually kick off uh, Fire Prevention Week on October the 9th, and so uh, we'll be looking forward to that. That also marks our uh, National Fireland Firefighter Memorial Week. Um, and so that memorial and recognizing uh, the responders that we've lost. But I think the focus on on home fire safety, where again we coalesce as the whole of the fire service to work the problem, and I think that's that's the important piece. But helping people to understand fire safety, you mentioned space heaters, and 
when I hear space heaters now, uh, what first comes to mind is the Bronx fire um, that we saw last January, very much driven by a cold weather situation, very much driven by behavior change uh, based on weather. Um, and so, first of all, the basic safety of you know space heaters, we have to talk about that, which is make sure they're three feet away from any combustible material, but also. I want to just go a little bit further than that because that space heater, and I'll go back to the Bronx fire. Yes, the space heater was the cause and origin uh, in that moment, but the the fire itself, and this is where we get lost sometimes talking about, okay, that was the cause and origin. Yes, if that hadn't happened, we wouldn't have had a fire at all. But what happened in that fire was that once the fire spread in that apartment uh, that was the, the area of origin, and it was allowed to spread outside the department into the hallway. Then the smoke from that inundated the building. So the fire itself was contained to the floor of origin, which in a high rise or a mid rise uh, like this should have been sufficient that everyone who lived above that could have sheltered in place. In the Bronx fire, that wasn't the case. And I think this is a much bigger picture that I want folks to understand. Yes, the fire is the problem. However, the smoke is what killed everyone. No one died from direct fire impingement. Everyone who died was on upper floors and it was from smoke inhalation. So that particular building was the problem. The HVAC system had no dampers. The walls were leaking smoke. Uh, people reported smoke coming from their medicine cabinets. So this is a problem with our, um, you know, affordable housing in much of this country where we have buildings that allow that to happen. Yes, again, space heater, point of origin, could have stopped it with that. But when we get beyond that, those incidents that do occur, we have to address what other mechanisms are in place to curtail the catastrophe from happening. And so this is the greater story that I think is part of the mission of the USFA uh, as we talk about um, these causes of fire. What are the results? After the cause, what happens then? Uh, and I think the bigger story is where we can have uh, even greater impact. Yeah, I think you art articulated it really well, just the importance of that messaging. And, um, you know, just doing a little bit of research, I, I, the numbers of uh, home fires every year are really astounding. I mean, I've I've seen numbers as high as forty eight thousand fire home fires a year. I mean, that is just really. I mean, and I'm sure it, it ranges in intensity um, or in in impact, but those are really um, really dramatic numbers. And so, I, I'm curious what your thoughts are for the kind of messaging, the kind of outreach, the the ways that emergency managers and, and fire departments around the country can encourage people to be more fire aware and, and take steps to be safer at home, whether it's a single family home or a, a high rise uh, condo building or apartment building. You know, what, what are the tips for those emergency managers? First of all, those numbers, even though you think they're astounding, uh, we believe they're very low. Uh, we don't know what we don't know. And part of that is the data problem we have within the USFA and a legacy data system and where departments across the country are, uh, many are reporting. We're only getting about 76% of fire departments who report. Now, beyond that, um, not only is that not the whole, 100% uh, of departments, but we also know that a lot of people have fires in their homes that never call. Um, they don't report them at all. We also know that once fire department responds, 
that even the data they're inputting into the system is often not the whole story. In other words, there was a fire, there was suppression activity that took place, but we'll have firefighters who even put the data in to lessen it so they don't have the burden of adding more data, right? And so this is something we're trying to address. So we know that the problem of fire in this country is severely under reported uh, in many different areas. And so it is much worse than even uh, you described. So what can we do? Well, I think the fire safety messaging is um, is something we have to maintain. Now, we've got to figure out better ways to do it. And why do I say that? Well, right now, think about we just came out of COVID. We know that people were completely inundated. Well, we still have some, right, uh, with COVID, but we're we're on the backside of it, hopefully inundated with COVID messaging. They are inundated with social media. They are inundated with news. Um, today, we've got massive hurricanes. What people aren't understanding is we still got fire danger in and around where this hurricane is hitting, massive red flag warnings you know, all around. So people are inundated with so much information that often it's very difficult to process it. Um, and they will become complacent selecting, you know, where do I feel a threat and where do I think this won't happen to me? And it's the this won't happen to me group that I'm most concerned about because that is exactly uh, when it happens. And so we have to be very diligent to understand how people are getting their information, how they're processing it. And I think there's a science to that. And then providing the appropriate information and timeliness, uh, appropriate timing and, and hitting those spots where we know the message can be consumed. Uh, that's the problem. We can put out messaging, but if nobody listens and consumes it, then we really communicate. And, and I think that this is our challenge uh, across the board, fire service, emergency management uh, across the board. So I, I just want to go back to something that you uh, that you just said that kind of hit, hit me. Um, for those who have maybe small fires who, who don't report it, um, there's a risk in there, right? Because you might have an underlying um, you know, structural damage or electrical damage, right? And th I mean, those are some significant issues. Absolutely, they are. Um, and then we have, um, you know, folks who just have food on the stove, or maybe it's a, a grill fire outside, that if it spreads to another area, and we see this constantly, it has spread to another area, whether it's inside a wall from a, an electrical fire that you saw outside an outlet, you don't know it's spreading inside your wall. And hours later, after you go to bed, now the fire is inside the wall and maybe in the attic. And there's all kinds of scenarios that we could describe like that. So reporting is incredibly important. Uh, call 911, have them come and check. Um, you know, when you have an incident, you deem small uh, food on the stove. Uh, maybe, you know, if you're looking at the skillet, it was burning. Now you put a top on it. It's not. That's a different scenario than having, you know, the inside of your oven on fire that may have spread or, you know, breached the back. All kinds of different things that could occur. Even a, a grill next to your house or, you know, a smoker next to your house um, that has now flamed maybe down, you know, small smoldering grass fire. We know what drought is doing, uh, something you may not have caught from a grass fire, you know, down below that once you go inside, now it accelerates. So these are all kinds of scenarios. I mean, you can make it up. So it is important um, to report even the small things. 
So you mentioned uh, drought and uh, some of the other impacts of climate change, and obviously some of the things that we are seeing in the news regularly, uh, wildfires, particularly in the West, but not always in the West. Um, you know, certainly um, there are areas, other areas of the United States that are susceptible to wildfires. Um, talk a little bit about uh, what you're seeing with wildfires in terms of different causes and uh, and what maybe communities can do or steps that they can take now to um, think about preventing them? Oh, I love that question. Um, you know, when we talked about the fire won't wait, plan your escape. Um, and yes, it does certainly apply to home fires, but this absolutely was crafted in that way that it applies to wildfire as well. Because often that is a big place where um, there's some um, lack of, of understanding of about planning your escape in a wildfire, too. We have egress routes, uh, you know, in wildfires that are minimized. And if you don't plan to know how you're going to get out of your neighborhood when there's only one road in, that's a big deal. And so I just wanted to make that point, first of all. But I can tell you that uh, wildfires, yes, historically in the West, that's kind of the, the paradigm that we have to shift now because we are seeing year round, not just in a season now, but year round, they'll start early spring uh, in the East, Florida, North Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama. And we're seeing that early. And then you'll watch as the, the year progresses, it will spread right across uh, we pick up Texas, we pick up Nevada, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, all the way into Florida, Oregon, and Washington. Um, and I'm just naming a few of the high-risk states. All of our states now are, are having fire impact. And so we have to understand, first of all, that uh, interface fires, and we say wildfire purposefully, uh, because our forests, you know, yes, they burn. Um, they are supposed to burn. Many of them are, you know, they produce new foliage uh, from fire. And so that is an understanding that we have about our environment. But it is because now we have built in what used to be forested areas, fire prone areas, we now have a built environment. People are living there. And so that is where we begin to really recognize um, the real dangers is in that interface uh, is what we call that, the wildland urban interface. And the interface, when it uh, the fire hits the built environment is when we really have the issues. And so we have, uh, for the last 15 or plus years, had what we call the National Cohesive Strategy uh, in regard to wildfire, and that is completely relevant even today. We're doing some updating to it, but uh, absolutely relevant. One of those is landscape. If you're going to live in a fire-prone area, then you must pay attention to landscape. We have science around this now. No wooden fences, no sheds within 10 feet of your home. Pay attention to your roof and your building materials, your windows. All of these things matter. We have codes that advise uh, based on science about how you need to build. And so certainly paying attention, no shrubberies around your home, use rock instead, you know, things like that matter. The second piece of that national cohesive strategy is a fire adapted community, right? And that means learning to live with fire. If you're going to live in what is a fire prone area and I, people need to understand that just because we remove trees uh, where it used to be forest and we put homes there, um, that geography is still fire prone if it has been for the last 100, 200 years, right? So if that is where you choose to live, understand that you must be fire adapted. All of the things I just mentioned about your building codes, the building materials, sprinkler systems, these things are incredibly important. 
and then being savvy and understanding the move of uh, embers in your neighborhood. And the third one that is absolutely important, uh, third part of the national cohesive strategy is our response capability. And so making sure that fire departments in the area are prepared to respond in the interface. And so most of our structural environment um, firefighters are trained for one fire at a time, right? We train them to deal with one structure at a time. In the interface, well, I should give the juxtapose, in the wildland, they are trained for vegetation. We know how to deal with that. The interface is where those two things connect. And it's also the place where we have not one structure, but you, you know, half a dozen, a dozen down a street. Now, how do these firefighters engage? And that's a different training methodology. It's different strategies and tactics from either of the other two uh, in, in, you know, pure wildland or pure structure. So we have to understand that we have to train our firefighters differently. Uh, often we are giving them different PPE to operate, but also people um, that live in these areas, please check and make sure your fire departments are appropriately staffed, they are trained appropriately, and they have the right equipment. And that's advocacy that um, folks can do in if they're living in these interface communities. Many members of the FEMA team respond to wildfires, unfortunately, and they um, it is a devastating scene. Um, uh, for a lot of reasons. And, uh, and I think the public sees that in the news, in the news reports and, um, and can, and it's overwhelming. Um, but it's also in some ways overwhelming for those firefighters. Uh, that's the other image that I think we see is, uh, you know, how exhausted some of these firefighters are for the, from the constant, um, battling of fires. What is your message uh, when you are out there speaking to the firefighters? How do you, how do you keep the morale and the motivation high? Wow. Um, good question. Um, you know, firefighters, uh, are a different breed, just like, you know, emergency managers, we all do this, um, whether it's a, an adrenaline, uh, junkie or whether we are, uh, passionate about service, we're passionate about public safety. Um, so these are, are different folks to begin with in their, their mentality to serve and to, uh, be risk. Um, I don't want to say risk, uh, prone, but uh, they're not risk averse. They're ready to step into the space. And so they want to be there, but there comes a time when their physical exhaustion, their mental exhaustion, we have to pay attention to. And so making sure that they know they have advocates, letting them know, uh, you know, asking the question, are you okay? What do you need? Uh, what can we do for you to change? Uh, what, you know, don't you have that we can, you know, engage to educate those who are making decisions on your behalf. And so that sort of goes back to where we started with the conversation about decision makers and making sure they're educated. You know, these these folks who deploy, the, the men and women who deploy as firefighters in all of these arenas, I would say to, to decision makers, don't look at them as a commodity. These are human beings. They are here to serve. And uh but they are human beings nonetheless and deploying with the same kind of uh, emotional, mental strains as anyone else has. Uh, certainly those who deploy in law enforcement and military. And they also have families. And, and I think about these fires and many of these firefighters that respond in these areas also live in these areas. And so while they're responding, their home, um, we hear these stories all the time, their home is burning. And so these are behavioral health stresses that 
are difficult to overcome. And so it is important that we continue to talk about it. We continue to educate decision makers. We continue to make sure that they have uh, behavioral health resources. They have access to uh, assessments uh, for cancer uh, because of their exposures in these environments. So I think it is uh, it is the ongoing advocacy in, in that regard that gives firefighters uh, the wherewithal um, to be feel they're supported and to move on. Certainly, certainly, and um, you know the the fire service by and large i don't think i'm uh, out of bounds by saying that uh, it is a primarily a male dominated field and i'd be remiss not to say that you have ascended to the this position as a female leader through this service and so what do you what are your thoughts on the recruitment for more women to be part of the fire services um and not just gender diversity but also you know by and large all diversity of bringing more and more people uh, into the fire service. I came on at a time where um, there were not only the the a lot of the folks that I worked with. I told you I was uh, the sixth woman hired in Memphis in the eighties. We've had FDNY's had women on the job there for a little bit longer, forty years or so. Um, some of the other older departments they had ones and twos, you know, along the way. But we came on the job at a time when not only did a lot of the men uh, that we worked with not want us there, but their wives didn't want us there either, right? So it was a, a multifaceted problem. And I was fortunate to have male mentors because there were no female mentors. I had male mentors, not only on the fire department, but throughout my career, as I moved to the, the national level uh, to do work, I remember having uh, the man who hired me at the IAFF, uh, his name was Alfred Whitehead. He was out of the LA County Fire Department. And I often think that if he hadn't been from California, he'd have never hired a woman into that spot at the International uh, Association of Firefighters. But he said something to me that sort of drove me. And it was, you know, you're never going to be one of them, meaning male. And he said, you're going to have to give 110% to their 100 if you're going to make it. And that resonated with me. I can I can hear it, hear him saying that. It resonated with me. I believed him. And that has driven uh, my performance uh, throughout my career. And so I would say, you know, appropriate or inappropriate for saying something like that today, back then, uh, it was a driver for me. But I think today, one of the things that I would say is that we do need women mentors for women, but we also need continuous to have good male mentors for women. And men need to step into that space and and help to mentor, open doors, recognize skill, recognize knowledge uh, and education and experience and people trying to do their job. Um, Often it's not about gender at all. I watch uh, women and men of all shapes and sizes do this job. It's about preparedness. It's about education and willingness to step up and actually do the job and and making sure you're physically fit and uh, appropriately prepared um, mentally to do the job. So um, it's important too, you know, that we have little girls who see themselves. I, I, I said to you before we started that I was just with the Women in Fire Conference last week and and it was fantastic. There were 850 women there Um in the the scope of this conference that were there to do the job, right? And it is important to watch them. But one of them came to me and she gave me a firefighter doll 
that she had had made. And she said, I want you to see this because we're making these for little girls. And it had turnout clothes. She said, you can, you know, the clothes are interchangeable, had a uniform, and then it had the turnout clothes for firefighters, the helmet, the whole thing. But this doll, it was a big doll. And she said, this is the first of its kind. And I'm like, I've never seen this before. And it's important for little girls to see themselves. And I think something that simple and the camps that we're doing nationwide in fire departments throughout the country, it's important for little girls and and teenage girls to see themselves in this job. And so that needs to continue. And and certainly that expands to, you know, people of color, um, different race and ethnicity. And it's important that we be as diverse and inclusive as we can, and that we learn to understand and collaborate and lead together. Thanks for listening to this episode of Before, During, and After, a podcast from FEMA. If you'd like to learn more about this episode or other topics or have ideas for future episodes, visit us at fema.gov podcast.